0: This summer, our family got to spend the summer in France, which was pretty cool. It was hard. Uh, We were working as missionaries of sorts in Marseille, France, which is close to all the cool um, romantic places, but it's not itself one of those necessarily. It's a grimy, gritty port city of two million, second biggest city in France. But one of the things, because we got to go over there and kind of serve as missionaries for two months. We were close enough to Italy that we took a family vacation to Italy. And, you know, what was really cool about that was getting to go to Rome. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Rome, but I'd never been to Rome. And uh, as we were reading up guidebooks, because I'm one of those people who loves to research If I'm going to go visit somewhere, I'm going to research. Like You can be sure that I had Googled quite extensively where is the best hot chocolate in all of Rome, and where is the best hot chocolate in all of Marseille, and since we were going to go to Paris for the last weekend, where is the best hot chocolate in Paris? I don't know if I ever found the best hot chocolate in Marseille. We found amazing hot chocolate in Venice, yes, and especially in Paris, but that's beside the point. The point is I like to research and figure things out. And one of the things that was interesting, I don't know if you guys know about Rick Steves. Anybody knows Rick Steves and his travel guides? Yeah, it's sort of a cultic kind of uh, group that follows Rick Steves. If you don't know about the Rick Steves cult, you should just Google Rick Steves travel guides. They're awesome. But he said something that I found very true. And I was thinking about this all summer because I knew we were gonna go through the book of Hebrews this year. I believe the book of Hebrews was written to a small group Of Christians, smaller than the group that's gathered here tonight, probably a house church, if you will, of Jewish Christians meeting in Rome. They've already experienced the expulsion of all of the Christians from Rome under, I think it was the Emperor Claudius. They've now been able to get back into Rome, but now Nero is on the throne and things are about to get really dicey for Christians. The people that this letter is written to are people living in Rome who are Jewish Christians who are about to experience intense persecution. There's a point later in the letter where the writer says that you have endured cheerfully the confiscation of your property, but you've not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood. But it's coming. It's coming. Nero liked to do things like take Christians, dip them in tar, stake them up on big stakes in his garden and light them on fire to be candles for his garden parties. And that was just the beginning. This is real stuff written to real Christians who are about to undergo intense persecution. And the thing about Rick Steves that I found so fascinating He said, when you go to Rome, you will notice Roman architecture is all about intimidation. Roman architecture is all about intimidation. This letter starts out speaking a word that seems to fly in the face of everything that they can see and that they know. They're in Rome where you see, you just have to stand in front of the Colosseum and imagine what it was like. You actually can be helped because we got this cool book where it has a picture of the ruins the way they are now, but then there's this like plastic overlay and you put that on and you see like what it used to look like. But even seeing the ruins now, it's incredible. And to think about in the day before skyscrapers and all the kinds of things that we have, to think about being a Christian Your group is so small that you fit into a single house. And here's this guy writing to you, telling you that what God says determines everything about reality. And you're like, now, have you seen the (laughs) Colosseum? Do you know what goes on in there? Do you know what they do to people who defy Roman power in that place? And yet God doesn't mind being countercultural. This is a letter written to Christians who find that being a Christian goes against everything in their culture. And in a lot of ways, it relates to you more than you may realize. Uh, There's a guy, William Willimon, who used to be the chaplain at Duke University. He's actually a a Methodist bishop in the Alabama region now. But when he was the chaplain at Duke, he tells a story about one time celebrating communion, or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, depends on your tradition, what you might call that. Um, with some Lutheran students in Duke, at Duke, uh, on like a Tuesday night. Now, I don't know if you know North Carolina. There's not that many Lutherans from North Carolina, though I know one, right? Yeah, (laughs) Reed is actually Lutheran and from North Carolina. But in general, there's not many Lutherans in North Carolina. Am I right? Yeah. But if you go to Iowa, where my family's from, Lutherans rule the world. And so William Willimon says to these group of students, uh, these Lutheran students at Duke, he says, you know... um, I'm glad you're here tonight to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, You should know that the university is out to kill Lutherans. Don't take it personally, though. They treat Catholics and Jews the same way. This is the chaplain of the university saying this to these students. He says, what you need to understand is that the university is out to make you a lot less Lutheran, a lot less Catholic, a lot less Jewish than you were before you got here. And so I congratulate you on being here tonight because you've learned that to survive as a Lutheran, you need to gather together, sing Lutheran songs, hear the story that Lutherans celebrate, the gospel. And you need to eat Lutheran food because these are all formative experiences. Worship shapes and molds you. It's always shaping you. It's always molding you. Now, he said, when you were back in Iowa you probably thought that Lutherans ruled the world because the parking lots were always full on Sunday morning. Or if you're a Baptist from Texas, you might have had the same experience. But you come to a place like Belmont, even Belmont, the Christian University, and you find there's a lot of things here that I didn't expect. And there's a lot of ideas that I didn't expect, maybe. Maybe already you've confronted this or come to grips with this a little bit. If you haven't had that happen yet, you soon will. And the question is, how are you going to make sense of all this stuff? All these different ideas, all these different words. Because what God says is he's spoken a word into all of this reality, a word that defines reality. And he doesn't mind that it goes against the grain of everything. Um, There's a guy, James Davidson Hunter, he's a professor at UVA, sociologist, has written a book that's getting a lot of attention in the last couple years called To Change the World. It's a really fascinating book. If you're interested in affecting the culture you live in, you have to read this book. His basic thesis is that Christians are really completely ineffectual at affecting the culture because they don't understand how cultures change. And uh, anyway, it's a fascinating book. But one of the things he says in there that I thought was, is so important as we think about the book of Hebrews tonight, he said what people need to understand is it feels very different to believe and to follow Christianity in, for instance, the Middle Ages where everything in the culture supported belief in Christianity. It feels very different to believe in Christianity in that context than it does to believe in Christianity In the world that we live in. And you need to understand, you need to understand that belief in the things that we're gonna talk about at RUF does not go with the flow. And so it should be the kind of thing that provokes questions and struggle and maybe even some turmoil. And that's why, you know, we hope that for you, if you're gonna be involved in RUF, that this won't be the only thing you're part of. It's why it's so important to have small groups to get together for coffee and talk about these kinds of things. But let's look at the book of Hebrews, chapter one. I actually put the, the uh, scripture on your little outline that I gave you there. And the reason is because I'm actually going to read from the NIV for the first four verses, the New International Version translation. And then I'm going to read from a translation uh, called the message, which I think in the book of Hebrews is really well done. And actually, sometimes there are times in the In the book of Hebrews, where it's difficult to follow the train of thought. And I've found, because I've taught through Hebrews a number of times now, that the message sometimes really helps elucidate uh, the meaning. Some of you are like, Is he a liberal? You know, is in the message liberal? I don't think it is. I think Eugene Peterson's a good guy and it's a good translation. Um, And he bristles if you call it a paraphrase, by the way. Um, It's a translation. So here we have God's word, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. No apologies, just laying it down. Here we go. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, far higher than any angel in rank and rule. Did God ever say to an angel, you're my son, today I celebrate you? as he does in the Old Testament. Or, I'm his father, he's my son. When he presents his honored son to the world, he says in the Bible, in the Old Testament, all angels must worship him. Regarding angels, he says, the messengers are winds, the servants are tongues of fire. But he says to the son, your God, and on the throne for good, your rule makes everything right. You love it when things are right. You hate it when things are wrong. That is why God, your God, poured fragrant oil on your head, marking you out as king far above your dear companions. These are all quotes, you see, from the Old Testament regarding angels and regarding the sun. And again, to the sun, God says, you, master, started it all, laid earth's foundations, then crafted the stars in the sky. Earth and sky will wear out, but not you. They become threadbare like an old coat. You fold them up like a worn-out cloak and lay them away on the shelf, but you'll stay the same. Year after year, you'll never fade. You'll never wear out. And did he, God, ever say anything like this to an angel? Sit alongside me here on my throne until I make your enemies a stool for your feet. Isn't it obvious that all angels are sent to help out those lined up to receive salvation. Now, this is an interesting passage because the first part is this glorious, majestic introduction, and then he spends like two-thirds of the chapter talking about angels. And you're like, okay, that was sort of a weird left turn, and he seemed to belabor that point, and I'm not sure like, what the point is for us today. I hope that you will understand how important every bit of God's Word is as we studied here tonight. In RUF, one of the things we always want to be about is studying God's Word in its context. Sometimes that means you spend times in things that you might ordinarily overlook or pass on by. But we want to wrestle with what does God have to say to us from all of His Word, since the Bible says all of His Word is God-breathed and profitable. So let's pray together, and then we'll dig into Hebrews chapter 1. Lord, we do thank you for this portion of your word. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see you, Jesus, as more beautiful and believable than all the amazing things in this world, whether it's angels or whatever it is. We pray, Lord, that we would see, and not just see, but sense even on our hearts, that Lord Jesus is glorious and beautiful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, basically, the heart of what this passage is about is that we should be amazed that God has spoken and continues to speak. And even more so, we should be grateful that God does more than just speak. But let's start with this first idea. We should be amazed that God spoke and continues to speak. Now, what I want you to understand is if you're trying to figure out what Christianity is about... And I don't know where you're coming from. Maybe you've had quite a lot of exposure to Christianity, which might be a good thing or a bad thing. Depends on the kind of Christianity you're exposed to. You may not have had much exposure to it at all. But here's what I want you to understand. For Christians, it's axiomatic that God has spoken. That means it's basic. It's a vital point upon which everything else rests, that God is a God who speaks. From the very beginning, this has been a gracious, condescending thing of our God. As a matter of fact, John Calvin is, is famous for coining the idea or the phrase that the Bible is God's baby talk, that God lowers himself and condescends to speak to us in language so that we can understand But he does that because he's good and because he's gracious and because he wants to have a relationship with us. So many of the other religions, particularly in the time of the ancient world, believed that God or the gods wanted human beings to figure out what they wanted. In other words, it was like this cosmic game. That you need to figure out what do the gods want, and we better make sure we figure it out. And there's all kinds of bizarre practices that they engaged in to try and figure out the will of the gods. Do you know of all the ancient manuscripts that we have, of all the various eras, of all the various different cultures, the predominantly, by far, the predominant topic that they deal with is how to know what the gods want. It was an obsession of ancient peoples. I would say it's still an obsession. Because people all the time are wanting to know, how do I know God's will for my life? And I say, well, it says in, in Thessalonians that God's will is that you flee sexual immorality. You sure you want to know? <laughs> you know, come back for more. We'll give you some more when you get that one down. So people have this assumption that if we just knew what God wanted, we would do it. But here's the thing. One of the great things about God is he doesn't hide himself. This is why so many of the ways that people go about trying to figure out God's God's will that Christians even engage in are more akin to paganism. They start with the assumption that God has made little games for us that so we have to learn all these little techniques and all these little skills to figure out God's word. That is so, that is so contrary to the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God who speaks right from the beginning. He speaks the world into existence, right? The, the world, it all began with a word. Let it be, and it was. And then everything fell apart when, ma- when mankind didn't listen to God's word and instead said, we'll do what looks good and sounds good to us. But then God pursues mankind with a question, Adam, where are you? Not that God didn't know, but Adam didn't know where Adam was. When God asked questions, he asked the kinds of questions that cause you to ponder and wonder, and think about where you are. And then God pursues mankind, even after they've refused to listen to them. He pursues them by speaking a promise in Genesis 3.15, that I will take the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the man. It's the first promise that Christ would one day come and wipe out sin. It's there in Genesis 3.15. So from the very beginning, God has been speaking, man has not been listening, and God is still speaking. Do you realize it's an amazing thing that the Bible doesn't end with Genesis chapter 3. I know we take that for granted, but when God spoke, told Adam and Eve how they were to live, and they didn't do it, he had every right to wash his hands of the whole thing and say, I'm done if these people won't listen to me, right? Right? Now, this shouldn't surprise us that God is a God who speaks because unlike the pagan gods who just want little human worker bees, the God of the Bible wants rich relationship with his people. And communication is basic to any real relationship. So it shouldn't surprise us that the God of the Bible is one who speaks. He's always been one who speaks. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says here at the beginning. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You know, we live in a day and age where the idea that God speaks is, is, is not a popular idea in a lot of settings. You know, the postmodernists are going to say to you, well, all speaking is really an attempt to tyrannize you, to take power over you. So when Christianity says that God's speaking is because of his grace and his condescension, the two, there's a massive collision there. Do you understand this? Right? There are lots of ideas about this idea about speaking. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of people in our day and age would say, what I can't, I like the idea that Christianity wants to serve the poor and they have some good ideas, love your neighbors, yourself, all this is kind of cool stuff. What I can't get or my eyes around or my ears or my uh, thoughts around is this idea that the Bible is true. Because it seems to me that if I have tried to have a relationship with somebody who's always right, like that just can't be a real relationship. And, and here's, you know, what I would say to that. If you pick and choose what you like in the Bible, then you may think you're talking with God through the Bible, but you really are probably talking to yourself, and you're just using the Bible to do it. And that doesn't matter whether you're somebody who rejects the Bible or whether you're somebody who says, I believe the Bible, but you tend to read it selectively, and you kind of camp out in the passages that support what you already believe. Uh, St. Augustine said many, many years ago, that if you accept what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospels you believe, it's yourself. And the book of Hebrews will call into question what we believe, and particularly what we believe about speaking. Now, what you see in this passage is that God has been speaking over and over again through various ways and in various times, but he's been speaking a consistent message. And the book of Hebrews is going to talk about this later in chapter 11. It's going to pick up this idea. And you're going to see that there's a message that God has been speaking from the very beginning, and it's this. If you would summarize it, you say, what's the Bible about? Here's what the Bible's about. God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. The basic thing that the Bible is about is about a God who makes and keeps promises to people who don't deserve it. And you know, I believe you know in your heart of hearts that you were made, that you were made to make promises and to be promised to. It's why people resonate so much with wedding vows. It stirs up everybody. They're either really hard to hear or your heart leaps when you hear those words because you know that you were made for that. In spite of sin, in spite of broken vows, in spite of fear, and all kinds of baggage, you know you were made for that. And the Bible says you were. You were made to be promised to. And that's what God does. That's the speaking. And yet, the whole story of the Bible... What he sort of summarizes in two verses here, God is speaking at various ways and in various ways and various times. If you spread that out and you actually look at what the Bible says, you find, yeah, what, what, what also was going on there is that man wasn't listening in various ways. Some of them quite creative, but always the same basic thing. God speaks, man doesn't listen. God doesn't give up, God keeps speaking. Finally, it culminates in what? In God speaking through his Son, All through the Bible, God has been saying this, I want to marry myself to a people. It's what I made you for. And when you spurned my love, I have never given up on you. And I'm committed to marrying you. And then he finally sends his son who comes and says, look, I'm going to live with you. Emmanuel, God with us, has come in the flesh. Like the Gospel of John says at the very beginning, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's what it says literally in the Greek. Tabernacled among us. He sat down, uh, as my friend Scott really likes to say, you know, Jesus you know, took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. He came right here to live with us. Why? Because it's what he's always been about. Being with his people, an intimate relationship. And even though mankind refused it again and again and again, God says... I'm sending Jesus to be the exclamation point, if you will. I'm still saying the same thing, but now I'm saying it in bold, underlined, and italics all together. I want to be with you. I would rather die than live without you. That's what God is speaking in Jesus. And that's what he keeps speaking. And the question is, are we listening? Right? Right? That's the question at the beginning. Are we listening? I have to ask this question. I have to ask it of myself. I have to ask it to you. What kind of relationship do you think you have with God if you never really listen to what he says? Now, there are sophisticated ways of not listening to what he says. And then there are just plain old, you know, I don't care what he has to say. I'm going to live what I want to live. But if you understand that God did not create human beings just to do his stuff and just to run around. I was talking to somebody else, and they were like talking to me recently about the purpose of mankind. said, well, I think the purpose of mankind is just to, um, to lead people to Christ and bring them into the kingdom. I said, really? I think that's not the purpose of mankind. I know it says that at the end of Matthew, but that's a temporary purpose because it wasn't the purpose before the fall entered the world. And it won't be your purpose in heaven. There'll be no evangelism in heaven. You need a bigger purpose. The bigger purpose is to live, love God and enjoy him forever. Now, to reach that purpose in this age in which there's sin in the world, yeah, evangelism is part of it. But it's not the ultimate purpose. And the reason that matters is because so many Christians think the ultimate purpose God has saved them is that so they can work for him. Guys, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, first and foremost, he wants you to rest in his love. There were some disciples in John chapter 6 that come to Jesus and say, what is the work that God requires? And he didn't say, run out like chickens with your head cut off, doing all this cool work for me. What he says is, the work that God requires is to believe the one he has sent. Whoa. Fascinating. God is speaking. He's speaking in Christ. Now, there are a lot of people, you see, I think, that feel like, you know, I have a good relationship with God. I'm sure he thinks well of me because, you know, after all, I haven't killed anybody. In the South, we believe in justification by death. The way you get to heaven is you die. If you die, you go to heaven. That's justification by death. I think we believe it in America, actually, but particularly in the South. The Bible never says such a thing. The Bible says, great, you haven't killed anybody. Well, if that, was the, if that was the bar, awesome. But what the Bible says is that you're created to be in a relationship with God. A relationship characterized by people who love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, with all their strength, from the moment they're born to the moment they die with no let up. And then you're like, oh, okay, that's what God says? <laughs> that's what God wants? That's not good news and it's not, actually. I think so often we flatter ourselves and think that if we just knew what God wanted us to do, we'd do it. Don't fool yourself. You're committed to what you want to do, and so am I, unless God changes your heart of stone to a heart of flesh and moves you to obey him. But praise God, he does. (laughs) And that's where we go next, is that God did more than just speak, and why I love, I love the beginning of Hebrews here, because you get the two most important things, that you have to have both of these things or you lose Christianity. God speaks, but he does more than speak. Jesus is not just a good teacher. His teaching actually is not what makes Christianity unique. Now, for a lot of Christians, that's kind of a threatening idea. But, you know, here's the point. Every religion, every religion has events and teachings. But Christianity is somewhat unique in that the teachings really are secondary to the events. The teachings explain the events. But there's a lot of religions where it doesn't really matter whether the Buddha lived. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter that the last words the Buddha spoke we never cease striving. Now, I think that's a revealing deathbed saying, very different than Jesus, whose last words were, it is finished. Couldn't be more different, actually. So, you know, remember that when you get to your comparative religions class. But the, the, the thing about, about Christianity is, see, it, it really matters whether the events happened. In, in, in most of the world's religions, all that really matters are the teachings, But in Christianity, it's not just enough that God has spoken. What matters is that God did more than speak in Christ. And that's what you see here in this passage, right? At the end of verse, I guess it's the beginning of verse 4, is that right? Yeah. Uh, End of verse 3. After he had provided purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I have to tell you, the NIV translation, as much as I like it, is weak here. Because that word provided is really not in the Greek. The Greek is past tense. After he purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And that's a big deal because it's one thing to think that Jesus has just made salvation available if you do your part. It's a whole other thing to think that what Jesus did at the cross actually saved people. Why does it matter? Because if Jesus just made salvation possible, and it's up to you to kind of finish the deal, well, then you can never rest. You can never rest. There's a lot of people who have grown up under this teaching that... I need to do my part. God does his part. I need to do my part. And if we both do our part, then salvation happens. That peace with God comes because Jesus did something, but then I have to do something. And all I can tell you is, if you believe that Jesus plus your effort equals salvation, salvation will always be a variable. Why? Because you're a variable. And all I can tell you is, you know, I I can just remember you know, rededicating my rededications over and over again, praying that maybe this time I would really, 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 really mean it. It's, an, it's, it's a nightmare. It's a catch-22 that will drive you to the brink of despair. What Jesus did was complete the work of purging our sins, Yes, the Holy Spirit applies it to your life when you trust Christ in faith, but the work has been done by Christ 2,000 years ago. Christianity proclaims a bloody cross and an empty tomb and a God who speaks. And that is absolutely vital to understand. Now, if here's, here's what I, where I want us to go. It's, it's so vital for us to understand this, not only when we're suffering, but when we're living. Let me show you how it works with suffering. If you're suffering and you don't understand that what Jesus did on the cross has the power to make you beautiful in God's sight, then when you're suffering, you'll either hate yourself or you'll hate God. Because if you feel like I've done all the right things and God owes me, then when suffering comes into your life, you'll hate who? God. Or if you feel like suffering's come into my life because I didn't work hard enough, I didn't do enough things for God, then you'll hate yourself. But understanding that the life and death of Jesus can give you real peace changes suffering completely. If you don't understand that, it makes every trial a double trial because you wonder what God really thinks about me. The second thing is it's vital for living. You see, it's, important. it's vital that you understand that Jesus purged sins on the cross because otherwise you're always left wondering. Here's the thing. I know a lot of you all have grown up in church. Um, I don't know if you know this guy, Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City. A lot of people have heard of him these days. Great, great guy. One of his professors, a guy named Richard Lovelace from Gordon-Conwell Seminary uh, up in Massachusetts, said that a Christian who doesn't understand that the work of Jesus, Jesus living and dying in the place of sinners, can make you beautiful in God's sight. If you're, if you're a Christian or somebody who follows Jesus and you don't understand that, Richard Lovelace says, you are worse off psychologically than an unbeliever. Let me, let me say that again. If you're a Christian, but you don't really understand that God's work in Jesus on the cross can make you beautiful in his sight, then you will be worse off than an unbeliever psychologically. Why does he say that? Here's, here's, he explains it. He says, because every time you read the Bible— Every time you come to a meeting like RUF or go to church, you get constant bulletins of what God has said and what you need to do. And your list just keeps getting longer and longer and longer and longer. But if you don't understand that everything God says you need to do, Jesus did, and you get credit for it if you're in Christ, and everything that Jesus said you should do that you don't do, Jesus took the punishment on the cross. If you don't understand that, then reading your Bible and going to church will actually make you more depressed than you ever thought was possible. So it's absolutely vital that you understand that Jesus finished the work and that he explains what it means. Now let me just say, closing, how these two go together because it's vital that you understand this. Because if you lose one of these two things, you lose Christianity. You do. Let me, let me put it this way. If you believe that God speaks and you really believe that God speaks, but you don't really believe that He purged our sins on the cross, then you're like many people who grow up in evangelical churches. And here's the issue. You believe God is said to do all these things, and every time, like I say, you go to church, you just hear more things that you need to do. It's like, I, I always pity the music business majors who go to these seminars where somebody will tell how they made it in the music business. Because what you should hear is, wow, God is remarkably creative. And there's all kinds of fascinating stories about how people got from this point to this point. That's not how you hear it, though. Most students I know are making like a continual list of all the things they need to do. And they're like, well, you know, so-and-so did this. I guess I better do that. And -and so-and-so did this. Oh, I better do that, too. And by the time you're like finished your freshman year, and especially if you're a zealous freshman who gets all your combo done in the first year, like you're dying because you're like... I don't know how I'm going to actually do all this stuff and make it. No. See, that's what church is like for a lot of people. You come into it, you're like, God has saved you by his grace. And, And the Christians are like, great. So you need to do this and this and this. And make sure you do this and you do that. And the longer you're a Christian, the worse you feel. And you get to college and you're ready to just explode. Because all you've ever heard is what God wants you to do. And if you are honest with yourself, you would say, I think that God is disappointed in me all the time. But guys, let me tell you this. The truth of the gospel, the good news that Christianity proclaims, is that if you're in Christ, you are beautiful in God's sight. Because Jesus did everything that God wanted you to do, and you get credit for it. Have you ever heard this story or this illustration about how, you know, there's a book And in this book, God has written down everything you've ever thought or ever did or ever wanted to do. And one day, if you become a Christian, God will wipe out everything from your book. And you'll open it up, and lo and behold, your book will be empty. And a lot of people proclaim that as the good news of Christianity. But i got news for you. It's only half the good news. And therefore, it's not good news at all. Christianity does not say that becoming a Christian is a clean start, and then you get to try to impress God from there. No. That's horrible. It's not Christianity. Instead, what Christianity says is that, yes, you do have a book, but so does Jesus. And in Jesus's book is everything that he ever said and thought and did. And when you become a Christian, God switches the covers. You don't have a blank book if you're in Christ. When your book is opened up, everything that Jesus did Loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength from the heart is what you get credit for. That's absolutely vital to understand. So you need to understand that. If you just think that God speaks, but you don't understand that when you become a Christian, you get Jesus' book, you get Jesus' life, well, it's hard to go on, and you've lost Christianity. The second thing is this. If you believe that Jesus died but you're not quite convinced that he speaks or that it really matters, then you lose Christianity that way too. And here's what that means. It means basically you're somebody who believes in what we call cheap grace. I know that God loves me and died for me, and it doesn't really matter how I live because I'm covered by his grace, and he'll forgive me. It's like one of, one of those French dudes, I forget which one, that you know, was supposedly was asked on his deathbed if he was afraid to meet God. And he said, no, God will forgive me that's his job. There are a lot of people that basically believe that. And here's the thing, again, what kind of relationship do you have where you don't really care what somebody does with their life? Can you think of anybody that you believe really loves you that doesn't give a flip about how you live? All I can tell you, working with students for 17, 18, I don't know how many years, the most insecure students I know are the ones who never had any limits whose parents never said, I don't want you to do that. The ones who had no limits whatsoever, who never heard from their parents, I care about whether you do this or do that, are the most insecure people I know. You don't really believe someone loves you if they merely tolerate you and let you do whatever you want. And that's the problem with this view of Christianity. Yeah, Jesus died. It doesn't matter what what he says because I'm okay. God's okay with me. I'm okay with God that's so empty. You lose Christianity. Why? Because Christianity is not just about you getting into heaven when you die. Christianity is about having rich relationship with God, even in the here and now. And there's no relationship if you don't care or he doesn't care how you live. So if you believe that he speaks, but you're not sure he died for your sins, you lose Christianity. If you believe that he died for your sins, but you don't really care about what he says, you lose Christianity. Now, at RUF, I pray that we will always be about these two things. About God as one who speaks, and God as one who did more than speaks. When we talk about the gospel, we mean that the gospel is good news about something that God did that changes everything. That's what we're going to be talking about and about the implications of that uh, this semester. We live in a world of competing words. And let me just tell you, what's all this weird stuff with the angels? Here's what you've got to understand. We live in a day and age where pop culture, pop culture, we make angels into sort of like people that sprout wings when they die or they're like nice little ornaments that you put on your Christmas tree. But in the Bible, when angels appear, do you know what they usually say? Fear not. They don't say, they're there, it's okay. No, they say, get up off the ground, you, you know, you know, quit groveling. But, you know, people, you know, angels are freaking awesome, right? I don't know how else to say it. In the good old sense of the word awesome, I don't know about the good old sense of freaking, but the good old sense of awesome in every way. If you were tempted to worship something, angels are a good candidate. Angels are a good candidate. They're glorious and they're awesome. But here's what the writer says. Listen, the angels are a good sort of maybe candidate for an alternative thing to worship, an alternative thing to put your hope and trust in. But listen, to which angel did God ever say, you're my son? Sit at my right hand until I put everything beneath your feet. Now, do you know why this matters for us? I know you're not tempted to worship angels but I know you're tempted to worship something besides Jesus, whether it's your talent or your personality or some relationship. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your sweet pedal board. I don't know what it is. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but it's something. There's always something that's vying for your heart's affection, saying, trust in me and everything will be okay. And here's what you need to learn to do. You need to say, you know what? God has spoken about that. And God did not say to my pedal board, sit down at my right until I put everything beneath your feet. Now that's silly, right? But God did not say to that boy you've set your heart upon that he's going to make everything work and he's going to make everything right. And you need to learn how to speak gospel truth, God's word, into your idols and the things that compete for God's glory in your life. I know they're there. It's vital that you understand that God spoke and God died for you. And your idols will never do that. Right? Now, we'll talk more about this idol stuff as we go on in, um, in our UF. I know I threw a bunch of new concepts uh, at some of you guys. But that's, again, why we gather for coffee and, and we can talk about that stuff. And certainly in the small groups we'll talk about this some more. Let me pray, and then um, we're going we're gonna to sing a closing song.